this week, how can we better protect farm workers? Or, I don't know, protect them at all? And later, the news. A free online summit for eco-anxiety from Rita. A new era for Alzheimer's treatment. Inflated prices of packaged food. And saving lives with better weather forecasting. But first, I'm Quinn Emmett, and this is Important Not Important. Science for people who give a shit. The newsletter features the most important science news, how to think about it, and what the hell we can all do about it. Hit subscribe right now to get this newsletter and my conversations with the world's smartest people every single week. You can find the email version and links to everything at importantnotimportant.com or right in your show notes. It's July 14th, 2023. Here's your weekly action steps. First, donate to the Food Chain Workers Alliance, a coalition dedicated to improving working conditions for workers in every stage of food production, and to the native CDFI network to improve access to capital and credit for indigenous farm workers. These are obviously all uh, relevant action steps to our essay this week. Uh, Number two, volunteer to build a climate resilience hub so your community can better respond to extreme heat events and other disasters. Number three, get educated about how to protect yourself and your community from heat and other extreme weather with the resources right in your show notes. And last, be heard about building heat-resilient communities and share the Heat Action Platform Tool and the U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit with your city officials. And now, today's big question. How do we better protect America's farm workers, who often aren't Americans? If there's a TLDR semicolon thing to this rant, it's this. America has a well-documented history of relying on disposable farm workers. And as climate change makes that job even more dangerous, which is really saying something, landowners, elected officials, and corporate powers remain disinclined to protect, much less support or (laughs) nourish the hands that literally feed them and us. So, We're going to have to make them do it. And look, after the hottest June in recorded history, July isn't faring much better. So many regions around the world and in the U.S. are cooking. And it's important to remember how interconnected our climate and weather systems are. Carbon emissions don't respect borders. Florida's melting? Well, it started in Africa. And it started in Africa because of emissions produced here in the U.S. and in China and in Europe. El Nino is here, finally, and while there's lots of talk, online at least, about how devastatingly hot the oceans are, something we're stupidly usually prone to ignoring because most of us do not live in the oceans, I'm here today to vent more specifically about the inexcusable broad lack of protections for farm workers on land, why it matters to all of us, and what the hell we can do about it. Some background. Per whole shitload of research, farm workers in the U.S. are something like 35 times more likely to die of heat than other workers. Now, your gut response might be, yes, but isn't that obvious? They're outside exposed to the elements and also pesticides. And I'd say, you're fucking right. Odds are you're working from home. So take a look around your kitchen. Uh, Put your hands on some cherries, uh, grapes, strawberries, oranges, or peaches. Pick one up. Where did it come from? Who picked it? What sort of conditions from heat to pesticides were the crop and crop picker exposed to? 
And what happens if that person suffers or even dies because of those conditions? Would you notice? What if I told you these essential workers didn't have to die or even come close to it, but that generations of bad guys have proven that they don't care if they do? Let's catch up a little bit. Ignoring for the sake of brevity, which I know is not something I really do, uh, the myriad macroeconomic arguments about America's 246-ish years of formal slavery. Understand that, like we talked about earlier, we built this city on enslaved labor, not, in fact, rock and roll. And that fine tradition actually continues today, just adjusted slightly. We no longer directly steal people in mass from their countries and sell them on the waterfronts of New Orleans and Charleston and New York. That, uh, again, formally at least, ended after Lincoln, by way of Grant and Sherman, yikes, uh, kicked the shit out of the Confederacy. Now, we spent the next couple hundred years uh, not really doing Reconstruction, <laughs> denying former slaves and their descendants any real participation in the wealth game, while the rest of us industrialized everything inside our borders, warming the entire planet, and pretty, pretty, pretty unevenly. So, we needed new farm workers, since we obviously still eat food. The problem is, we don't totally know how to grow food without what is basically free labor. So, enter Mexico and friends. Our current generation of farm workers, uh, the National Center for Farm Worker Health Estimates, 70% of agricultural workers in the U.S. were foreign-born. Again, this current generation, they go through journeys from hell to come here just to die in the sun, um, from one boiling country to another. The legacy of slave labor remains in a bazillion ways, including how farmers are mostly unprotected because a bunch of racist Southern politicians, elected by racist Southern plantation owners, decided not to include farm workers in the National Labor Relations Act in 1935. And now you might be saying that was almost 100 years ago, things have changed, and I would say, actually, not much, and we're going to talk about it. So, look, we don't call farm work slavery anymore, of course. And farm workers are actually far less likely to be black than they were before uh, during actual slavery. But that doesn't mean that the workers that pick and package our food, one, didn't come from somewhere else, and two, aren't intentionally expendable. Now, again, you might argue with that, but at the end of this essay, I think you might have a hard time doing that. 98% of rural land in America is currently owned by white people. The Center for Migration Studies estimates that 283,000 of our current farm workers are undocumented immigrants who, despite the efforts of many awesome folks, including the action steps above, have no real clear path to citizenship and have no real health protections. Probably half of the undocumented farm workers are in California, and the rest are spread among uh, the Midwest and the South, where the ancient soil, one, it was once plankton, they call it the Black Belt, is so goddamn rich. The soil is so, soil is so incredible. It spawned the bulk of all that slavery. And, of course, on the eve of the 2020 presidential election, an enormously fascinating and popular Twitter thread from uh, Latif Nasser, co-host at Radio Lab, which we'll put in the notes. Now, in the actual newsletter, I shared some warming stripes images. I was going to do it for every state without farm worker protections to show how hot it's gotten and, and where these folks have to work. But it turns out most states don't have those protections. So I included, I think, California, Florida, Georgia, 
but also Mexico to show why those folks have to leave there. So anyways, the point is, none of this is an accident. But now, with the climate crisis here, our oceans and our land and our crops and the people who tend to all of them are in deep shit. Let's talk briefly about what that means, what heat does to the body. And again, briefly, because I think you're going to get the point. You can pause here to read Jeff Goodell's new book, The Heat Will Kill You First, which is subtle. Or you can stay right here with us and, and listen, however, briefly about the work of uh, Roxana Chicas, an El Salvadorian-born immigrant, nurse, researcher from Emory University, who spent the past decade or so investigating the effects of heat on farm workers' health. So besides nausea, muscle cramps, crippling headaches, vomiting, and fatigue, there's uh, this as documented in the Washington Post. One of Chica's studies, published in 2018, collected blood and urine samples from 192 farm workers over 555 workdays during the summers of 2015 and 2016 to measure hydration and kidney function. They found that on any given day that the farm workers were tested, 33% of them had incurred kidney injury and that the likelihood of injury increased with the heat index. Again, that was five years ago. Hey everyone, it's Quinn, your host and the founder of Important Not Important. I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the INI or any, whatever we're calling it these days, membership and community. It's a gathering place really for our most dedicated shit givers, a place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year and it's grown to hundreds of shit givers from all kinds from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, research, and tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member-sourced action steps, twice-monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, Go ahead and subscribe for free, and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening, and as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. Okay. Again, I feel like this is enough data to move on to how we're choosing not to protect them from these very specific real risks. Which again, as we always frame here, are opportunities to make different choices, for us to do something different. So 
Again, let's kick this section off by recalling how dangerous it can be for undocumented workers in any industry to call attention to their status unless they absolutely have to. So we should actually assume there's a fair bit of suffering and or death that simply isn't being counted. From heat, from pesticides, from heat and pesticides, speaking of pesticides. It may not surprise you that the same agency is responsible for approving pesticides and enforcing their safe use, and it's rife with lobbying. Now, last year, Civil Eats, which you should absolutely subscribe to, uh, highlighted a lawsuit and a bunch of reports revealing how OSHA, A-O-S-H-A, does little to enforce pesticide safety rules, leaving workers with damaged eyes, torched skin, and children born with defects, all for basically a better tomato crop. To protect themselves, because no one else will do it, farm workers are often advised to wear long pants and long sleeves to protect against pesticides, which is about as helpful as school kids hiding under their desks from a nuke. Now you might be asking, OSHA, what the hell? Where, where are the feds? What's going on here? Well, versions of congressional bills that amend the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 and provide for overtime pay have been introduced over the years only to not pass to flounder. A new one, the Fairness for Farm Workers Act, is actually out now, but this will surprise you. It's seeing little enthusiasm from the right, the same parts of the country uh, that turned against the bill in 1935 and 38. So two years ago, the new Biden administration and OSHA actually announced plans to develop new rules to protect workers from heat-related illnesses. Well, it's July 2023. It's the hottest month of all time. And two years into Biden's pretty successful industrial climate administration, and those rules do not yet exist. Meanwhile, Congress continues to negotiate this year's farm bill, one of the most ridiculous and enormous policy instruments on the entire planet. So it's renewed every five years, like some bizarre pagan ritual. It's due again this very September. The farm bill has, for a hundred years basically, required members of Congress and a gazillion lobbyists to wrestle together the country's many agricultural and nutritional priorities, which often compete against each other, into a sprawling package that still mostly benefits monocrops and white landowners, who again still own 98% of rural land in the United States. So, it's terrible outside. We get it. Many groups are pushing for this year's version of the Farm Bill to be a climate bill, which is kind of meaningless since climate is everything, but it, we get the point here, right? Shit's changing fast. We only do this every five years. We're not doing enough. We should do this now. So the 2023 version of the Farm Bill should reckon with how much has changed already. Hotter nights, changing frost dates in the Southeast, desertification in the West, of course, briefly interrupted by these biblical rains this winter. But despite leaving 1.3 million acres unplanted in 2022 before those rains due to drought conditions, leading to $3 billion in losses, California isn't alone in what's happening here, not even close, right? Florida's citrus crop has basically migrated north to Georgia, whose own peach crop got crushed this year because the frost dates and the heat. Texas is enormously dry and running out of groundwater. Across the country, corn, cotton, rice, olives, wheat, and other row crops, the ones we subsidize, have just been punished by drought. 
in recent years. And all those losses have sent insurance payments through the roof. And all those checks might just be keeping industrial farmers from moving to more climate-friendly farming practices. Now, if this sounds to you like coastal, floodplain, and fire-threatened real estate insurance markets that we've talked a lot about recently, you're paying attention. It's the same deal. So what does the new Farm Bill have planned? On the docket, paying farmers to use more of those climate-friendly conservation practices. That's great. Not on the docket. Actually moving subsidies from monocrops and from ridiculously high-input farming to more diversified production like legumes, beans. So will armies of competing lobbyists build a bill that recognizes the immense change on our doorstep and that plans for and even tries to change the future? Probably not. We're realists here. But at this rate, a hell of a lot is going to change before the next bill in 2028. So it would be prudent to do these things. Subsidizing climate-friendly farming practices like cover cropping, utilized by indigenous peoples since the beginning of time, basically, uh, would be a start. And funding is growing for those methods and others like uh, hedgerows and uh, silvopasture. But (sighs) this is terrible. It's a drop in a very hot ocean. Meanwhile, quote, 86% of indigenous farming communities lacked a single financial institution to access loans or capital within their borders, end quote. And because billions of the farm bill's sweet cash still go straight to traditional commodities, industrial farms, and their owners, small farms continue to have an impossible time getting insurance and staying in business, much less competing on the good days with the big boys. The Farm Bill has long recognized that shit happens, of course, which is why it provides farm owners with insurance for crop loss due to drought, etc. Just this past year, catastrophic peach losses in Georgia? Great, you were compensated with a natural disaster declaration and all kinds of insurance stuff. Here's my question. How come farm owners, again, mostly for row crops, not peaches, uh, to be fair, get annual protections from crop loss due to climate change, but the pickers do not. What happens when that same drought or storms or floods or wildfire smoke causes farm workers, who are again mostly undocumented immigrants with no path to citizenship, what happens when they lose their jobs or someone in their family dies? Well, they certainly couldn't afford housing any longer, which brings us to housing. We know that housing is a climate fix. It's a catastrophic problem nationwide, but especially in California, and especially for four to 800,000 underpaid farm workers who harvest the bulk of our country's fruits, vegetable, and nuts out there. 77% of which, of whom, sorry, live in overcrowded or extremely overcrowded conditions with multiple families sharing bedrooms, living rooms, garages, and other spaces. Now, California has committed recently hundreds of millions of dollars towards migrant and farm worker housing, but it's nowhere near enough, and now California's surplus is long gone. Food is also pretty hard to come by, which is amazing because they're farm workers, and that's because straight-up undocumented immigrants aren't eligible for SNAP assistance, the same assistance that Republicans are trying to cut further. Now, there are a number of groups of non-citizens that are eligible, but the caveats involved are ridiculous. You can read about it in the newsletter. And surrounding all this is the never-ending heat. Housing keeps you safe 
from heat if you have power and air conditioning. Food can help keep you safe, can nourish you. Um, the heat is never ending because the average number of days spent working in unsafe conditions is expected to double by mid-century. The heat is never ending because so few states, except for California, Oregon now, Washington, Minnesota, among them, have actual farm worker protections. That's it. It's never ending because there are actual fucking monsters in the world, bad guys like Greg Abbott, who rescinded mandatory water breaks in the middle of this historic heat wave. The heat is never ending because farm workers are often paid by the piece, not the hour, which means taking breaks in the shade, no matter how you feel, equals lost income. Here's a quote from an article. Sevra would push herself to work faster through sweat and thirst to exhaustion, even a feeling of suffocation, because the heat exacerbates her asthma. She knew working so hard in the heat made her feel ill, but if she wasn't cutting, she wasn't earning money. And fern cutters, as she did, are generally paid by the bunch, not the hour. She gets 45 cents per bunch, 20 fern sprays to a bunch. What are we doing? Well, in the COVID era, early COVID era, California actually prioritized vaccines for farm workers. Finally, temporarily calling them essential workers, as the virus just ravaged their ranks because, again, they're living on top of each other. Here's my question. Are they essential fucking workers or not? When are we going to decide that? Well, we should also ask, why isn't it that way yet? And the answer is greed and power and lobbying to buy more power. Undocumented workers may not have much power, but the rest of us sure fucking do. Unions may be at their lowest point in a century, but literally today, this week, this month, more and more workers of every flavor, from screenwriters to actors to UPS drivers, are fucking done. Labor journalist Hamilton Nolan wrote in his piece this week, his uh, newsletter, How Things Work, he said, quote, Amazon is quite willing to spend any amount of money and piss upon the spirit of the law in order to prevent their employees at one single warehouse from getting a collective bargaining agreement, something they are absolutely entitled to by American law and more generally by universal human rights. And Sarah Nelson, by way of Mother Jones, by way again of Hamilton Nolan, said, the capitalists say there is no need of labor organizing but the fact that they themselves are continually organizing shows their real beliefs. And she's right. If industry lobbying groups in the fucking Sun Valley Conference aren't organizing, I don't know what it is. Look up how much all of these companies spend on lobbying each year. It's incredible. These trillion-dollar corporations and billionaires simply do not care about you. And they are constantly, constantly, relentlessly, putting enormous pressure on state and federal legislators to put you in harm's way in exchange for profits. They often write the bills themselves. Now, all that should remind you of a certain industry that rhymes with fossil fuels, reported by friend of the pod and legendary investigative journalist Amy Westervelt, whose most recent article cited that the oil and gas industry is dangerous for its workers, obviously, with a fatality rate seven times higher than the national average, according to a 2013 study. So anyways, who does give a shit? Well, we fucking do. There's a reason metaphors like grassroots campaigns 
and building from the ground up are so prevalent, especially when we're talking about farm workers. Without a firm foundation, compounded across people and time, nothing meaningful gets done, nothing grows, which is exactly why we're all here today. Is there any more apt example than protecting the hands that feed us, that get the food out of the ground? You know and I know now that if we stop new emissions, new warming stops too. But along the way, we are also going to attack every step of the farm-to-table supply chain. 73% of Gen Zs told McKinsey they're concerned about the environmental impact of what we eat. So let's use the action steps we talked about above to show them how we give a shit. Because if coral reefs are our measuring stick for hotter oceans, outdoor workers are like the canaries in the climate coal mine. What happens to them is terrible, but not in isolation. The heat and the storms and the flooding are coming for everyone. That's the opportunity to turn it around. It's going to take everyone to turn back the tide. Yeah, unions on the whole may be suffering, but this week they have received more coverage than they have in a very long time. Why? Well, movie and TV studios, collectively organized as the AMPTP, think they can make movies and TV without writers and actors. So the writers and actors unions, both of which I'm a member of, are on fucking strike together. Anonymous representatives of the studios said, and I quote here, the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. Well, here's a fun story, fuckers. There's no content or profits without actors. No acting without scripts, no scripts without writers, and no writers without a livable income. How does UPS think 24.3 million packages a day are going to get delivered when 340,000 workers, including the 55% of Teamsters represented who work part-time, walk out? How low do those $14 billion in adjusted profits go then? How will real estate funds earn returns and build wealth when real estate is no longer insurable, leaving millions in debt and without roofs over their heads? How will we survive another pandemic without a half a million new community health workers, better and more accessible primary care, mental health care for essential workers, and another half million new nurses? We won't. The time is to identify and protect essential workers, especially the most vulnerable and essential among us. That time is now. But as always, we have to, and we get to walk and chew gum at the same time. To protect farm workers today and stop new emissions at the same time, because even if they do get time in the shade, or God forbid, fucking air conditioning, or have some more room to sleep, what happens when the power goes out or the grid fails? What happens if we don't build these 75,000 new miles of transmission for all this glorious new solar and wind? Well, we're all fucked, is what happens. It's perfect that our most essential workers are also our most vulnerable. But it doesn't have to be that way. So let's spend all of our time doing everything we can to protect them and to build a more inclusive and resilient food system along the way. And now the news, and climate change news. Despite growth in renewables, global emissions from the energy industry are still rising. We gotta do better. 
Number two, how to prepare for and survive during a blackout in extreme heat. You can find that in the show notes. I'm not going to go over it here. Number three, join the Resilience in the Anthropocene free online summit from August 8th to 10th to discuss eco-anxiety and climate distress with leaders from frontline communities. Number four, I think, if you've, however reluctantly, made the transition to threads, you can start rebuilding your following list with uh, the climate solutions experts we've got linked there. In food and water news, number one, food industry giants are responsible for plastic pollution and compostable alternatives are probably not much better and they need to be held accountable on the supply side. Two, some cities are leaving toxic lead pipes in the ground for some fucking reason. Number three, need one more reason to prioritize fresh food. Inflation is still causing packaged food prices to soar. And last, a plant-based diet shouldn't stop you from enjoying a tasty little ice cream treat. In health and bio news, one, ice cream's delicious. Two, cost plus drugs from Mark Cuban. I, I can't say enough about what they're doing here. They're utilizing strategic partnerships to improve affordability and accessibility of prescription drugs. Coverage there. Number two, are you pregnant? The Pregnancy Workers Fairness Act says that your boss now has to accommodate you. We've got a link to everything you need to know there. Number three, FDA approval of lecanemab begins a new era of Alzheimer's treatments. I'm not a doctor. And last, 18 million doses of the first ever malaria vaccine are rolling out in 12 African countries. In computer news, investing in better weather forecasting could save lives. Number two, the UK's online safety bill could cause a greater risk to online safety by undermining encryption. Number three, AI could be used to tackle superbugs but also cause a rise in dangerous misinformation. Anyways, have a great weekend. That's it for this week. Hit subscribe to get next week's issue straight to your feed. To go deeper, visit importantnotimportant.com. That's it. Thanks for being a part of our community, and thanks for giving a shit. Have a great weekend. <laughs>